So um, I'm going to talk to you guys today about a big picture thing. The, since I'm a paleontologist, um, perfect timing, guys. Um, I kind of look at the world in a very different way. I like to think about things over billions of years and over all of the different diversity. And one of the this idea of the major transitions is very seductive because it makes that richness of life and the vastness of life understandable in a few simple principles. And so the basic idea is that there's hierarchical structure to life, right? From whatever down deep underneath the cell that's constituents of cells, cells going into organisms and organisms into colonies or societies and other stuff that happens up to species and maybe beyond. We have no real idea how many different levels there are. They may not even be discrete or um, identifiable in any real way, but they could be there at a multitude of levels. And so the trouble is, or the interesting aspect of it, is that this hierarchical structure is like not, doesn't exist outside of evolution. They like, when life evolved, it did not exist. It's something that itself evolved over time, and the evolution of this hierarchical structure really is the major pattern of the evolution of life on Earth. And so it's important to consider it because there's actually a huge amount of life that um, exists at the interface between these levels. And so our buddy Val Box, who holds our hand throughout the conference, is one example where it's a boundary, it lives at the boundary between a cellular and the multicellular level. But there's like these little colonial ciliate guys that Matt talked about at the conference. Corals, these bryozoans, which I'm starting to work on more, but won't talk about too much now. Ants, termites, siphonophores. A huge amount of crazy life lives at this interface, and we don't understand how they evolve at all. Mostly because population genetics theory doesn't apply to this things with these complicated life cycles. Um, one of my goals is to figure out how we can even apply a theoretical framework to how these things evolve. And so these transitions are happen all the time. One of the aspects that I like, the way I like to think about it in some ways is that they're actually quite easy. It's not, even though they're rare, they're not like a difficult thing. It's not like, um, it's a gamble and a rare event that this happens. Okay, and so cellular to multicellular life is the main focus. This one is tricky because there's kind of not that many good examples of a, the variety of stages there. All of a sudden you get the Cambrian explosion and you have all the metazoan animals present and the moment of the transition is not really captured in the fossil record. And so I kind of like to look at this multicellular to colonial or social transition because that happens very continuously over the Phanerozoic. And it happens in things with big skeletons like corals that we can see in the fossils and understand how it works and study how there's an interplay between these two things. One, is that, a, uh, Carl, is that an illustration from a famous naturalist that uh, keep using over coral? Yeah, I think the, the uh, illustrator is Google maybe. Google? <laughs> Not Darwin? No. And so... Um, so do you know why, why the first transition is different from the other kind? Which is the first one, though? That's, That's the well, hard which, part. Well, you, you the, want to study the organism to social right, populations. Why, why is that one sort of 
you can see it. So it just happens that they're bigger, I think, okay. right? Like, so cells are hard to fossilize that you can find them, but you have to work really hard to find that those first transitions by sifting through fossils and going out in the field in these crazy places. And it's a lot of fun, and some folks in the back do this stuff. Um, but it happens so quickly. For some reason, it's really hard yeah. to understand. And so this stuff happens all the time. And so here's one example of a new paper of mine that came out where um, I study the gain and loss of coloniality and photosymbiosis in coral species. And one of the problems is that like these guys that don't have photosymbionts live in the deep ocean and there's no real fossils there. And so the underlying data here is from a time-calibrated molecular phylogeny. So what happens is that there's this very interesting macro-microevolutionary interaction that produces on the top, basically an equilibrium frequency where there's about a 50-50 split of the species that have photosymbionts over time. And it's maintained by this strong species selection, which is the differential diversification of different coral species of different types. And the production, the variation that's produced and that it exists, it's produced by microevolution, is orthogonal to that. And so it basically... You're saying that over time you have this with endosymbiotes and with other Yeah, and there's a, a lot of gain a lot. Yep. Like you can see on the, on the fossil record. Like the fossil record you can't quite see because the ones that don't have the symbionts live in the deep oceans where the fossil record's poor. Oh, okay, okay. So as you go back in time and that record gets more and more poor, there's an increase towards photosymbiosis. So the fossil record in this case is lying to us. Oh, okay. And so when you do a reconstruction with the phylogenies, you see that it's actually very close to 0.5. And so that little red line there is the current observed in the wild number. And you can see that that red line kind of oscillates around that. What is the input into the phylogeny? So you have a few different genes that are useful for doing phylogenetics. And this one... Genes are fossils from the deep... No, 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 from moderns only. And you make the, the phylogeny from the modern species. And um, because you know where some of those branches in that phylogeny, where the, you have some fossil information about when those branches occurred, you can produce the temporal scaling and basically calibrate the molecular clock to match up with time. And so... The species selection stuff is really interesting because, from a transitions point of view, because speciation is something that's very different from the reproduction of organisms, right? And extinction is very different from death. It serves the same uh, serves the same function in natural selection, but it's like really different. So, um, species don't speciate only when their constituent organisms increase their fitness to above a certain point. It happens for other reasons. And it turns out also that you can't, that species tend not to evolve in such a way to, uh, to uh, lower their risk of extinction. That the, there's a, no correlation between the age of a species and its probability of extinction. And so this is what sets the stage for how I look at these other transitions that are a little more ambiguous. There's real, a real higher level, this speciation and extinction, and is very different from the lower level of birth and death. And so when you step back and look at it, these other multi-level selection scenarios like the major transitions, they look different to me than they do to people who study them naturally or, or at first. And one of the differences is that the parts and the holes totally interact a lot. There's not this big divorce between 
birth and death and speciation and extinction. And there's nothing quite like speciation automatically. So like these colonies don't, when they first evolve, they don't automatically reproduce. What do you mean by that? So like in agonium, it splits apart and it's very ambiguous if that's the same as just different dispersals of the cell or is it the colony of the gonium forming four new little babies? That's a judgment call to a large extent. So it's not like in Volvox where they actually do have, where reproduction has evolved, right? So there's some, some aspect to these transitions that the traditional theories are missing. The thing is that, so I'm just thinking that spe species, uh, it's not a unit of selection. Because all the transitions on the on the other levels, they're supposed they are supposedly some but the species unit. Oh, it causes evolution too. It's just this macro evolution. So and so it's the same multi-level selection process, just at a bigger scale. And there's lessons to be learned from studying something that's the same process, just at a bigger scale. And that you know what I mean. It makes it. The equivalent for, of speciation in the, in the colony level is the formation of new baby colonies. And that is different than the formation of the parts of the colony. And so the traditional way of thinking about this, the only way to get these transitions to sort of solidify is to, as the new level evolves reproduction, you have to turn off the reproduction of the constituents. So that's how Ken Selection describes it, and that's how it seems to work in Volvox, but that might not be a general example. So the issue for me is to, I want to know about animals. What animals do, right, is they grow and our cells divide, just as they would have in the single-celled ancestor. So there's a big difference between the cell division and the reproduction of new animals, and that difference has evolved. So the main question for me is not about this altruism question, which is a small subset of all the different traits that can evolve, but it's really how do you turn what once was a level of selection into basically development? How do you keep reproducing? How do the members keep reproducing and add a new level of reproduction of the whole? Okay. So. Paul, use your bamboo uh, pointer uh, instead of instead of just instead being vague. Okay. I try to put nothing in this corner so I can do it, but sometimes it doesn't work. Um, can, I, can I ask a question about the history of the of species? That yeah. is, uh, when we look at bacteria, uh, you know, the, what is a species and what isn't a species becomes a very fuzzy. It's really fuzzy. Uh, concept, and uh, so at some point in time, uh, in deep time, you could say that. Uh, what we think of as a species uh, kind of came to be, you know, uh, in a more definitive way. Uh, and it, some people have argued that that happens when sex evolves, that asexual lineages. If you put that on the timeline, are, are you, uh, are we talking about the Phenerozoic? Are we talking so about. So that is an interesting question, right? So there has been this Kevin Peterson guy, at least casually, has argued that there's no such thing as macroevolution before the Cambrian, um, partly because of this, because there's this fuzziness between the sort of lineage, cell lineage level in these 
unicelled organisms and the species. Hebrew seems pretty late to me, though. It is. Right about trilobites. And yep. And so, <laughs> sex evolves much earlier, and so there is a potential for like something that's easily macroevolutionary from this point of view to happen much, much earlier. But it illustrates this interesting problem, right, that sometimes these levels aren't very discrete. And that's one of the things that really happens during these transitions. There's this gray area where a new level is emerging and individuality hasn't evolved enough yet so that it's like easy to put your finger on and say, this is what's happening. And so I'm going to propose this expansion of fitness to include expansion. Sorry about that. Um, expansion is growth. And this is a way to understand the unfolding of a new level and treat the constituents that, that were the original level in a serious way where they can keep their own fitnesses. And so, so how, how do you find expansion? Sorry. So it's basically growth. And so I'll go into more detail. So um, in this example here, you have two groups, the red group and the black group. And the group B, the red ones, the parts increase in number at a higher rate than the black one. The black group has lower expansive fitness than the red one. And so the change of frequency over time increases towards the red. <laughs> so Lee Van Valen in the 70s invented this notion. And it was a natural consequence of him trying to turn fitness into an energetic thing to deal with some of these issues. How do you count fitness across things that are both uncountable and are very different magnitudes of, of unit? Um, he liked this so much that he wanted to subsume all the other aspects of fitness into this expansion one. And he runs with it for a few very large, interesting papers. But not much has happened. So I, I, I missed the difference between the, the reds and the blacks. The reds are just uh, reproducing faster? Yeah. Okay. And so from the point of view of the particles within the groups, they're reproducing faster. And so you have this major increase here that's going over, if you're focusing on the parts, you have a higher rate of, of population growth of the red versus the black at the part level. And at the group level, you have just a different size of those groups. And they're actually identical to each other. They produce the same change in frequency. So this is a, a key point for me. Expansion allows you to translate between two level, two adjacent levels of fitness. So growth at one level is differential birth and death of the parts. It's identical. And it's something that a new unit can have to some extent. So things like sponges, the cells will proliferate some rate and the sponge will get bigger. And that bigness, the growth of that sponge, it has evolutionary consequences. So if this is a sponge group and that's a bryozoan colony and they're competing for space on a rock, the sponge, the red, would outgrow the bryozoan in that case. That's a situation of natural selection by expansion. There's no birth and death, but it's still natural selection. Should one of these graphs on the right be frequency of blacks? You can do it either way. You can just follow. It's just the relative frequency in the population. You can track it I however you want. Can you say it again in a sentence? Yep. So here's the relative frequency of reds in the population. If they're all red, it'll be at 1. If they're all black, it'll be at 0. And so here's that frequency change over time. So there's evolution. 
due to the differential. Which means black and red. Yes. Okay. So there's a change in the relative frequency of these particles over time. And at one level, yeah, Roland. I understand the concept, but I don't understand why we, how we can see this from this, because if, if the reds reproduce faster than the than blacks, then it also in a non-spatial model you would see this, right? Yeah, for sure. That's the advantage of it. There's no need for space. Right. There's no necessary re reason to have this bound. It just I put it up there to sort of illustrate the issue. And so it, in, in a non-bounded system, it's just the different growth rates of these populations. Yeah. And if it's bounded, it's the differential growths of the bounded body. Right. We are comparing. Okay. Somehow you are comparing biomass. That could be if you wanted to. So biomass has its own problems. And so Van Valen's version is just calorie control or something. Um, for me, I just would count, do the demographics. So the reason this is helpful for me is that the traditional way to describe group level fitness is as the average of the parts. And so what that would say is that this growth rate here of the population growth rate would be the fitness of the group level and it tacitly assumes that those groups would then fragment at that rate. All I'm saying is that we should just treat it as the population growth rate. That's the, that's the first component of fitness at this new level, the difference population growth rate. But the graphs on the right, do you mean that the top is the frequency of red groups and the bottom one is the frequency of red <coughs> It is interchangeable. Is, is it not only interchangeable if the production of a new group happens after, only after the production of a certain number of particles? Here, the production of the new group wouldn't play into it at all. So those could fragment up, and if you're still counting at the particle level, the frequency will always be the same. So there's no difference between the top No difference at all. And so that's that way you can translate. One level is, is differential birth and death, but from a new level, a higher, more inclusive level, it's just growth. But they're only interchangeable if you assume that the red ones, so the red one has particles that are in a group. The red particles reproduce faster than the black particles. But if the red particles can reach a million, but they're still all within one group, there'll definitely be more red particles than black particles. But there won't be more red groups than black Nope, groups. and that's important to note. And so that the evolution of new numbers of red groups is a different step. So and it's a new, it's something that's in addition to this. Okay. And so I'll walk through a little bit more of how this doesn't explain any of the transitions at all. It's just this introduction of this sort of extra dimension into the problem. Okay. And so just to recap, there's this expansion component. The other component is like the different survivorship, the persistence of red versus black particles or the making of baby particles. And these could either be at, this, all three of these can be at any level. What? Survivorship. Survivorship. And so if we use a stochastic version of the price equation that's expanded hierarchically, um, it's basically the same idea as the normal price equation, but it includes um, phenotypes and fitnesses as random variables. And so you have the selection of the group, the phenotype of it, and its covariance with the differential birth and death of groups. And this little hat means that that's the expectation. Um, then you have a two terms where parts and wholes interact in different ways, where the 
the change in phenotypes of the constituents of the group interact with the number of offspring of groups and then the average realized version. So that's the expected future given the distributions that are involved and then the actual realized one given the sampling problem. And then this phase is the just the lower level where it's selection at that level and change at that level. And so this way of writing this price equation is useful because it really allows uh, two conflicting things to occur. You can have a somewhat a continuous accumulation of new levels of selection and they also are kind of discrete because each one of these terms behaves very differently. And so this first phase, what I've been calling the aggregate phase, is when expansion is the only thing that's happening. And so one example would be like a buffalo herd. They can split, they can fuse. So that is the seeds of a new level of reproduction are present, but they're not effective. Different population growth rates of different buffalo herds are the only form of this group level selection. And so it's going to be dominated only by this lower level term. So situations like this could actually be very common. We wouldn't know it. This is a part of the transitions that aren't usually considered because it's basically equivalent to ecology. Well, if I have a, if I have a, a group of just one uh, male buffalo, how is that going to uh, be viable? That's a good point, right? Because inherent in all of this stuff are sort of the things that selection at the new level can grab onto. And so there's always going to be these interactions that occur between levels because of things like that. Right? So if it's just one poor male buffalo, that group is going to die out at some point. And so one of the big problems with these transitions is that, like, how, where do you get the new variation for selection to act on? And it actually is really easy. And that's one example. Okay, so then the next phase is when you get that differential death of groups themselves. And this is when this crazy stochastic price equation comes into its own. Those two terms are not in the traditional price equation, and they describe the random fragmentation and differential survivorship and different sampling of baby groups from the parent groups. So here, reproduction exists to some extent, but it's... Can you say the, what is the stochastic price equation? Does it take into account these number fluctuations? Yeah, totally. And so if you're, like, producing... Um, so you don't make five babies, but you make a distribution of baby numbers centered at five that will take that into account. And they have phenotypes that are variable according to some distribution. And so you have the ex expectation given that the distribution that's evolved in the group and then the realized sampling of that distribution, which will always be different until you have an infinite population. And so an example of this are the usual kin selection examples where you have alarm calls and squirrels that cause the differential persistence of squirrel communities that have these guys that sacrifice themselves. So in this phase, you, have, you can have growth, but on top of that, in, in addition to that, you can, have, or you can have this expansion thing. But the key aspect that's different is there's also differential death of groups. And that if there is a little bit of fragmentation of the groups, that actually helps guide us to this next step. This next step happens when groups as a whole actually do multiply themselves. 
And diagnostic of this is a, ger a germ soma differentiation, either like having a queen or having gonozoids or little germ cells in the volvox. Once this happens, all the terms in this equation turn on and selection can be quite fast and the response to selection can be quite fast. And some interesting things I'll, go I'll talk about later here. So this is all right like somewhat ad hoc. I just describe the consequences of how evolution would, would look if you include this expansion component. And I'm going to try to test this, even though you can't go out necessarily and measure all of these terms in a real population. It makes some very strong predi predictions about what the changes between each phase looks like. So was there a question that I missed before I go on? No, no. It's just, just more curiosity in, in the synthesis of a germ, some of our distinction in the plants. Uh, so this is one of these Portuguese man of war type swimming scary alien things. Oh, it's and so there's this air bladder up at the top, oh. little feeding. Oh no, then, then I understand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It looked like one of these floating plants that make these um, uh, projections, these, these exploding uh, uh, ferns. Okay. It's yeah. a remarkable similarity, huh? Yeah. But even if it was a plant, many plants have a very clear germline fermentation. <coughs> mm -hmm. They just don't have all their germ cells gathered I'm, in one place. I'm not, su I'm not sure because. Um, because the cells can't move, so uh, they can always de-differentiate, and you always have the, the... That doesn't happen, right? A leaf doesn't they're, become they're a pollen sorry? grain. In the plants, that's... Yeah. I'm sorry? A leaf doesn't become a pollen grain. So for flowering plants, at least, they definitely have cells that can only make yammies well, and cells that... At least in the lab from a leaf, you can make a, a callus and grow a whole plant from that again. That's but different than making, a, making pollen or a fruit. Right. Well, it's it can not make, the case that the leaf cells change fate and become gametes. They will produce a new special set of populations. Yeah. That but in that way, they can contribute to the next generation. So there's no, there's no real germ soma distinction in the sense that there are some cells that can never become germline, contribute to germline again. So this is a really interesting discussion because there, this is a problem, right? There is this sense of clonality and a sense of, yeah. of sex, and, and they're different from each other. The fact that uh, in plants, cells don't move. Because, so they, they can never just migrate some cells apart that are going to migrate back to the... To but the all of your cells can move in principle, but they don't. Your cells from your arm will never become gametes in a natural setting. But if you force them into a dish and treat them with enough drugs, they will absolutely make gametes or things that look like yeah, gametes. Yeah. Just like if you take a leaf off a plant yeah. and you put it into the right conditions, it will definitely create a new cell population that's going to make gametes. Yeah, so that's that, right. For but that so reason, I don't think they're very different. But still, um, <coughs> still, you could, uh, still in, in many natural settings, leaves would break off a plant and form uh, form a new plant and and make uh, make flowers again. So this just depends on. After how many different differentiation events do you consider that the cell is still the same cell? Anyway, yeah, I, th I think we can. Yeah. So <laughs> this is an issue that it illustrates this point that there's times when the levels aren't really clear cut, yeah. and they're very important when there's this particular type of life history strategy where growth is really important. 
and they all have these kind of diffuse germline type things that are either somatically or epigenetically turned on or meristematic like in plants. And it's hugely ecologically relevant and they're totally ignored in these transitions point of view. Susanna, you had a question, right? Oh, actually, I mean, it was it is a little bit tangential, but um, reminded me of this conversation. So you have the, the siphonophore there, the Portuguese man of war, which represents this sort of superorganism, right? Do you know of any examples in other multicellular groups, like fungi or red algae or brown algae plants that have evolved an equivalent, something analogous to a siphonophore? So the new... Repeat the question. Yeah, okay. So Susanna's question was, the siphonophore is an example of a of two levels in addition past the multicell origin. So it's a colony of multicellular life. Are there any plant or algal examples of of colonies of algae? And I have no idea. No, can you generalize this? That once you that you know what, obviously it's happened or obviously it seems to have happened several times in animals. But can it? Can you? It should be generalizable. Generalize and say, well, life. Life evolves this multicellular stage, and then in lots of different multicellular clades, we see the evolution of a superorganism. But for, I think for plants, this is very, very yeah. difficult to, to define because there's really much less of a sense of individuality as you have it in uh, as you have it in these these animals. But that's true in animals too. Yeah. Like these corals are yeah. very. The difference between a social animal and a colonial yeah. one is what level of individuality they make this next transition at. Yeah, lichens. And so lichens, I don't know. I mean, in a lot of ways, these things could be very much like, well, maybe here's an example here, yeah. a putative one. These have multiple generations of babies inside of this vulvox. And so it's a stupid example, but it might count. It might be informative to think about those multicellular groups that haven't. Are there reasons like individuality is less discrete in plants? Commonalities. I mean, I so I'll, uh, I'll have a big commonality slide at some point. Um, but the plant examples are good. I haven't really been able to find any, and I've tried. Okay. So the way to test this is to step back from it and ask what does it mean to go through these different phases. And so from one point of view, it's the accumulation of new fitness components. So you start off as an aggregate with only expansion, then there's differential death of those groups, and then differential birth of, at the group level. And so you could find examples of when, if, the, if there's qualitative differences in the evolution for things that don't have, that are missing a fitness component. Um, and one way to approach this is to think about the reproduction of a colony as this sampling problem where there's a trade-off between trying to get the bad guys out and trying to keep the good variants. And as usual, it's much easier to be bad than it is to be good. And so even if, so there's this, it's a real difficulty. How do you keep whatever, and sometimes they're called cheaters, but things that don't participate at the group level out, and how do you keep the good variants? So if you had a division of labor within a within a multicellular organism, and you also had cheater-type cells or something like that. If you reproduce randomly, like you, like 
um, I think would be the primitive form, you have this problem all the time. And so if you have two different morphs that you need to make a good colony, um, it's actually very difficult to, to sample randomly and keep out a cheater. So those lines never really cross each other. But if you have only one morph, a uniform group, and you have, are founded by a small propagule, it's easy to keep the cheaters out. And so this is um, one way to think about that transition between or what happens in the evolution during the group phase is the evolution of a single cell or a small propagule phase in the life cycle. And then the other one is to just determine your propagules non-randomly. And so in some ways you can think of this as the origin of a reproductive division of labor. And so these two steps are observable bounds between these three abstract phases. Um. Question at propagule size one. Why, why does uh, why do they go up to like eighty percent? So this is just like um, one cartoon example where okay. there's a there's a population of the cell size is like there's fifty ones total in the group and there's ten bad ones and so basically these are all um, calculatable by hypergeometric distributions and. It becomes actually, the point is, when you have a single cell propagule, it's really easy to find the good ones because you're instantly segregating out bad from good and giving them a chance to survive. So I think that's really what's going on and that as a byproduct of this, you get um, uniformity and things that look like kin selection, but it's just a byproduct of this single cell bottleneck. Okay, so I'm gonna show you some empirical investigations of this stuff. So we wanna know, the hard part is almost everything has a single cell life cycle phase. So we can't totally go out and look and survey who has it and who doesn't, what did they look like. At the colony level, I'm starting to collect that data, but we're gonna kind of skip that for now and focus on sort of the, a corollary of this prediction that is observable for the next one, which is given a single cell propagule, and a homogeneous group membership that's a consequence of it, is it possible to evolve a division of labor prior to a reproductive division of labor? So can you only break the constraint that's imposed by uniformity by having random uh, by evolving away from a random reproduction? And so one way to do this is to look for the relative timing of two different types of division of labor, a reproductive one or a structural one like defensive members or feeding members. And an easy way to get at the timing for some of these squishy things that don't have a fossil record is to get one of these time calibrated phylogenies and do a reconstruction of when these things showed up. So we wanna know, for example, is the red, does it evolve earlier than the blue at all of the different nodes where there's co-occurrence? test in the relative timing. And so if this overarching thing that I've been talking about is true, you would expect that um, reproductive division of labor will always evolve first because there's no way to have heritable division of labor without non-random reproduction, without something that's like a germline. And so the data for this are from all the different types of colonial and social groups that are out there. 
and a few multicellular level like things like Volvox and some algal groups. And so what we would expect if I'm wrong is that you'll have a random smattering of points around here, some of which will be, um, you know, different tasks will evolve before reproduction. And if I'm right, they'll be clustered up on this other end. So what you see is that there's no examples of other tasks that evolve before reproduction. They either happen simultaneously and fall on the line, not at all up here, which is actually quite common, or the germline's always first. Or the germline is the only type of thing that evolves. And so you can't get, it's not observed that a colony of organisms has tasks that are differentiated where all the members are reproductive. I'm not sure that, that I understand the graph. Uh, Let me go back to so I can. So basically, what you're measuring is the time from the base of a tree towards the origin, say, for example, of a trait. Mm -hmm. And then you compare the. So this would be the other type. This would be the reproductive. And then you say, what's the time to the base of the tree to the origin of the reproductive? That's hard to tell if that's blue or not. But these ones would be simultaneous. Those two nodes both evolve it. They would fall on the line. Can you please give us a specific example? Maybe that would be. Okay. How do you calculate one of those points? So if you had, um, in this this is a coral example here. And so the blue is the gain and loss, or the presence or absence of colonial life. And all the leaves are different species. species yeah. Uh huh. And. The red then is, this is photosymbiosis just for this example, but imagine that it would be further division of labor like different types of polyps for feeding or defense. And you want to know which one evolves first. Does it, does, do you only get functional differences after you get a germline type difference or does it happen the other way around? Is that, and so it, it always happens that the reproductive either occurs simultaneously with or prior to other types of division of labor. So there are no ant colonies that have worker castes without queens. Um, there are no siphonophores that have lots of different zoetypes without specialized reproductive ones. And the reproductive one is always first, if it evolves at all. And you have many, many mammal groups and things like here where they're just not really differentiating in this way. So, so you're, you're, I mean, we're comparing the appearance of like a, a, new, a different gene or a mutation or, or something like that in one species that have, or sorry, not one species, but, but this one clade, yeah. evolves, right? Yep. And so, I mean, so, so we have, we're comparing two, but presumably you could compare a ton of them. Like, do these things happen in bursts? I mean, every branch on that, is it that a whole bunch of things change and, and that's why so, we'll see this linear correlation? Or? No, it's because it's a matter of the relative timing of them. So there's a few cases here, like um, maybe one of these or one of these, that are big hole bursts, like the in the social hymenoptera, you get real like a couple or three big bursts, like all of the ants that have that, and they both happen simultaneously. You get a queen, and you get the only after that, then you get this cast differentiation. So the burstiness of it is factored out. And so you do this by like, you know, you're doing this reconstruction, so it's kind of in this comparative evolutionary sort of thing, you're taking the independent contrast, and so you're controlling for diversity. 
which is helpful because there's a ton of ants. Okay. So a different way to look at it, the same problem, is just count up how many different genera that in the, yeah. What about plants? So plants, that's the problem with this. This is yeah. colonial and social, and so there's no plants really in that data set. Yeah. I'll bring them in later. But if you look at the individual cells within the plant. I'll show you that in a next slide. Okay. So it's, the, and the reason I'm separating is the quantitative data to do the similar sort of thing is much more difficult at the cellular, multicellular level. But it's not different. There is one difference, but it's not what you're thinking. And that's what difference? That it's easier for these things to have any order. Yeah, because they're just stuck to one another, so they could, you know, you could have, for example, easily already epithelial layers of cells. So all of that stuff is evolves after the specialization occurs. That's the point. Yeah. Okay. And there is a bit of slop in it, and that slop is a function of how much, um, how easy it is to be, differentiate and remain totipotent, and that's an open question. Yeah. Like, how different can you be and still revert back to a fully differentiable cell? Okay, so this is a slightly, the same question. What's the distribution of different types of genera out there given these combinations of division of labor? Um, the prediction is that it'll be very rare to have um, repro no reproduction and no other. Oh, these labels are switched, sorry guys. Um, this little lonely one is a one particular species of tabulate coral that's extinct that has two different sized polyps and the guy who wrote the paper said maybe they're reproductive specialists. We have no way to know that's been gone for 200 million years but I just put it in there as a possibility but that's the only possibility that it's never observed that a reproductive division of labor happens um, after other specialization. So it seems like there's good support for this like division of labor is something that needs selection at that level to act and selection can only act at that level if there's reproduction itself at that level. Okay, so here's this um, sample of multicellular organisms including plants and this is the colonial social level one. So a different way to th uh, th look at this problem is how many different morphs or polymorphs or cell types are possible given a particular reproductive strategy. And so if you have no germline and every member can reproduce, you would be a zero here. This is the proportion of non-reproductives. And it's that way so that we can stack the levels up. So this is equivalent in a qualitative view, the mode of germline determination, somatic, predetermined, and epigenetic using Leo Buss's type of characterization of the germline. And so the number of cell types, the number of different ant casts, things like that. But what we see is that the range of variation at this very low level is very small. So the colonial level, there are no examples here of um, differentiation of, into, poly, into polymorph types without one of them being a reproductive specialist. The more reproductive specialization there is, the more variation we observe. And so there's a constraint down here that's broken by the origin of a germline. Where does the cell type number data come from? So that is a mix of the Bell and Moore's paper and the Valentine paper, and I want more of it. 
and the germline is the usual sources, somewhat yours, somewhat buses, and those Dutch guys. And so the big difference here between these two things, between each level, is how much variation in the number of cell types occur when it's possible for all of the different cells to give rise to a new germline. And this is, because it's qualitative, we don't really know how much of a constraint there really is, and so it would be much better to have real quantitative data here. But it's also possible that this is real, that it's easier for a cell to differentiate and become totipotent than it is for an organism to do that. And so the, this variation down here could be artifact of the qualitative measure, it could be a real thing that is a measurement of how totipotency evolves. Um, yeah, so why, if there's one polymorph type, why can the fraction of a proportion which is non-zero of non-reproducing members? What's this one? So most of those are like wolves and mammals where I'm not by choice differentiating between different um, dominant members of a dominance hierarchy, but there's still a reproductive split. So there's like a dominant wolf that get, makes all the babies and the sub, the sub the, the subs don't. And so getting into that literature, would you could break that out and it will only push that, correlate, make that more correlated. And so that's a judgment call on how to differentiate different types that I haven't had the nerve to really make yet. And so there's a few human groups in here. Most of those are siphonophores and ants. Um, Lots of the corals are, all the modern corals, on every coral is down here. Other hydrozone groups are sprinkled about. And so what we can also do with this is take this um, quantitative axis here and see what the distribution of different degrees of individuality are. So this is the same axis, this proportion of non-reproductive members in the colony level, and you see this very skewed distribution where the majority of colonies are monomorphic and you have a few burps up here where there's these superorganism type things and then there's a continuous distribution in here at a very low level. So some of this is driven by sampling, right? If I had all the 4, 000, 4 million ant species, you'd have a very high peak there. And so there's some methodological issues when filling out this data to overcome, but basically the point is you actually have a lot of examples of these early phases, these, these aggregate phase type groups where all the members can reproduce. It's very common. To fully test the, the three-phase idea, the other axis that would be nice to know is the frequency distribution of propagule sizes in all of these. And so I'm actively collecting that type of data. One of the things you can get out of this is you can understand these, these weird army ant guys that found new colonies by swarming, even though they're really derived, advanced ant species. It's possible that if they, that they're evolving super colonies type things, colonies of colonies, and that swarming is their early method of reproduction of these colonies of colonies. How do they work? They, they found a new colony and then uh, they bring in machine from the previous one? There's just a big wad of them that go out and found a new colony. Where does the queen come from? They have a bunch of them that come from all of the different sub-colonies. Okay. And so 
usually like when there's this swarming type thing, they're very primitive types of ants where they, the queen tags along and then it's induced at the, when they make a new colony. And these ones kind of hike around and it's this weird um, mixture of really derived characteristics and really what you think would be primitive ones and maybe they are at this additional higher level still. Okay, so that's what's missing. Real data on this frequency distribution of propagule sizes for all these same species. Okay, so what you can do with these three phases is array them in a something that's sort of like what Dave Queller talked about, the space of possible transitions. This degree of individuation from aggregate to group to individual, so these are expansion dominated, expansion maybe plus persistence, and then where there's a germline type thing and there are real individuals there. And then the hierarchical level, cells, multi-cells, colonies. And in principle, any cell can transition to any other. So if a species is a in cellular individual, there's nothing to stop it from becoming a colony of multicellular organisms very quickly um, in principle. Though this three-phase argument that I've made suggests that there actually is a sequence. So if you count up all the observed transitions, 72 possible, it's much smaller. There's only really eight. And so the thicker arrows are the ones that are common. You can go from a cellular individual, and you always go up a level by going aggregate first, and then you move up individuation degrees. Um, but any level of individuality can then transition to a next higher level. And so you can have aggregates going colonial, or groups going colonial, or individuals going colonial. And where those choices are made determine these major differences, like in how much clonality there is. And it's the difference between a coral and an ant is where here in this degree of individuation they went hierarchical. Then the counter, um, the rare examples are very weird. So this might be that one species of solitary bryozoan. This one would be the Gila cells and the mixozoan parasitic cnidarian that went single cellular is there. Not very common, Sorry, all very special. What the, the, the lower boxes mean, the, the cellular aggregating group levels? It's a good question. Don't really know. And so you can think of these hypercycles as this, where the different hypercycles themselves have different survivorship, and they would then be cellular level groups. But this stuff is weird, right? It's kind of like this. A lot of ways, it's just chemistry. And then the biology starts only at this level here. So this Volvox example, you know, maybe they're babies of babies inside of each other. They're colonies. My favorite type of group, the sleaze of sponges, are up above as colonies of poorly individuated um, multicellular organisms. So I'm, I'm confused. What's, uh, how do you have a high degree of individuality and a low degree of individuation? What, 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 I don't so that's the level, like what level you are, what hierarchical level. And so it would be more precise to just say hierarchical level there. So that's the degree of individuation, and that's like cell, multi-cell, colony, and up, whatever. And it's, the reason it was labeled like this originally is because there tends to be this slight confusion in this transitions and individual, individuality thing where those are two, both called individuals. Yeah. So why do you put colonies so far right? 
Because they do reproduce to some extent over there. Yeah, but they reproduce as individuals. Also. Yeah. And so that's why they're not fully individuated. They're, they're at a, well, yeah. So the, where exactly they go here depends on what proportion of the colonies are reproducing. Yeah, so, so you mean that the reason that, for example, branches break off and form a new colony, that's the reason why you put them further right? Yep. And they would only go this way if they had actual reproductive specialists. So this right. bryozoans are some of which are way over here and some of which are over there. And so these guys that have this yep. higher level germline equivalent all fall there. So it's too bad that this is so qualitative, but it gives you a sense that the space is actually fully filled but the transitions between the different states are, are rare and specific. What's the difference between aggregate and group? So the aggregate is, the, is a collection of parts that evolve only by growth, of the, or increases in numbers of the parts. And, group. and a group is where they have differential death of the groups. Is it just that uh, aggregates don't have division of labor, every individual is... They don't have division of labor, or um, if they do fragment, they survive just as well. And, and the groups, you, you may already have some division of labor, some differentiation. It's possible, and that would push you more towards this degree. So the hard boundary there is when you have a germ-soma type of division. And the hard boundary here is when the baby groups can have difficulty surviving or may not form at all on that side. Okay, so I'm gonna talk a little bit more about some of the consequences of thinking about levels in this way where levels of selection have, there's a real break between types, between fitnesses at each level. So if selection within a body turns into expansion. Selection, at, so the new level of fitness is the birth and death of that new body that can grow or not. And if you think of then fitness as a ternary type diagram, different life histories are different proportions of the fitness that organisms are specializing in. So you can be totally a grower and don't care about persistence or multiplication and you would be I never really know how to orient myself on these, but the weird ternary diagram, you'd be somewhere over here. Um, and all of these, this type of plot could be filled out. And because of the hierarchical structure where expansion is the birth and death of parts below it, close your eyes if you're squeamish, um, there's a recursiveness to this graph where you can zoom in down the levels into the Hoff speedo. Okay, sorry. But if the, if the expansion comes from the individuals multiply, what's the difference between multiplication and expansion? It's a new level of multiplication. Oh, it's and so there's this hierarchical relationship. Expansion is persistence and multiplication at the level below. Okay. So. I'm sort of confused how we would how we would get like what's uh, what's something an example that would be at that top corner. There. So if you had, so that would be like a snail where it has determinate growth. It doesn't live forever. Um, so things that have determinate growth and senescence would be up at the maximal at multiplication. 
um, things that have don't have senescence but make babies and can grow a lot like a coral would be somewhere else and have this, since they're immortal, they would be maximally persistent. So these really strange life history things fit naturally into this kind of framework. And it would be impossible to be at the bottom right vertex, right? Yeah. Because then what would you be? Exactly. And so one thing you can do, a little trick that this is a little back of the envelope, and so um, we can talk about it. So you can, this recursiveness, expansion lets you treat the recursive structure of fitness seriously. And so if you recall this price equation, basically these two terms, and maybe a little bit here, are the only way that lower levels of selection percolate into the overall equation. And so there's, you, if you count up the proportion of lower levels that contribute to the evolution of the whole, either by restricting it to here, taking the middle and restricting it to these two terms, or that one for those four, um, you get this decay as the number of levels that you, that you include inside of a body increases, the contribution of the lower levels to the evolution at the highest level drops off very rapidly. This is very different than the Williams version of multi-level selection, where the higher level is a function of the constituent levels. And this is the reason why nobody believes group selection is real, because in this circumstance, if all these terms are contributing, equal to, um, are a function of the lower levels of selection, then the, the thing that's going to dominate evolution is the lowest level that have the highest, the shortest generation time, the highest turnover rate. And when you include expansion, that's totally different. Basically, the focal level dominates, and there's this decay. So there's hit levels inside of a body, potentially, that are invisible to selection at that level of that body. So if group selection was like Williams wanted it to be, every part of the body is visible to selection at the focal level. Everything, all the genetic components, would be adaptations at the group level. Um, they would all have to sort out to, to make it work. And you can see why that's very difficult. And with this decay version, parts of the genomes are invisible to selection at higher level. And that invisibility allows noise to build up. So one of the predictions of this is that if you had um, you know, meiotic drive and mutations don't affect speciation or extinction because that's the maximal number of levels I could add in a realistic way. Um, the higher levels are decoupled because of the recursive nature of fitness. So this is a, uh, some sketch? Or yeah, I mean, it's just a kind of a counting up of the number of terms if you recursively expand it up like that. Yeah, but then it still depends on the weighting of the different terms and the contribution to the... So, that's true in some ways, but it, you can see that you would have to have giant magnitudes to overwhelm the top, right? So because everything at the lower level is turned into growth, even if there's small terms up there, they're going to be dominating over that, unless growth is crazy. You see what I mean? Okay. Is it still, is it, it's probably confusing for everybody. Say it one more time in a different way. So, um, because as you drop down into more inclusive levels, 
from the point of view of the higher level, that's different contributions of growth. So from a group level, it's the growth of, um, of the colony. And the growth of the colony is due in part to the growth of the organisms that make up the colony. And that in part is due to the differential growth of the cells in the colony. And that decays quickly so that colony fitness is a very not affected by the growth of the cells of the members of the colony. But the thing here is that how do you define the, the individual? Basically? I mean, how do they what? How do you define the, the individual? Because the hierarchy or how many terms? Well, that's where this growth thing comes in, the growth, death, and individual. There's a continuum of, um, that's going to have the same problem. There's a continuum of individuality. You're most individualized when it, all of your fitness is dedicated to reproduction. And so there's a continuum. So that's a statement that you're making, or it's a prediction, so or it's both. What is with expansion? So if you take, if you believe expansion, and it's a component of fitness, and it allows you to have a real recursive structure to this equation, it's going to the lower levels contribution to the higher levels. So that's interpreting that yes. some of the terms as being expansion. Yes, and so the expansion terms would only be some subset of the ones that have the changes in the due to selection at the part level. The thing is, I mean, maybe I'm a little bit confused, but it's what, what do you define that it's expanding? Because if, if you define it that it's the cells within the, the, the coral. Well, you can measure them all, right? So you can yeah. see if the cells are contributing or not, or the yeah, polyps are the contributing. Or, yeah, whatever. It can be the molecules or the DNA or whatever. So, so if you just define it that that's what is expanding, Everything at every level has all three components potentially. So there's not just one level of expansion. Yeah. So and I mean, you can track that in principle. Yeah. So, so I was wondering that. So to put this in ordinary language, you're saying the left-hand side can have the same value, numerical value. Yes. These two different models, but depends how I add it up. Yes. On the right-hand side. I give Faye $10 and she owes me $10. That's one thing. If, I, if Faye then you know, gives $5 to Max, and Max gives $3 to <laughs> Brad, and Brad, you know, I have to collect money from all these different people, right? Yeah, and so uh, all that matters is if this fitness. It's the same amount of money, but I'm getting it from different, from different ways. Yeah. And so this fitness term here at the group level. The issue is, is it itself a function of the fitness of the part level or not? And that's the only difference. Yeah, so basically it's where selection is acting. That's right. That's, so if it does and so in the, if you have this function, this of, so the groups are the average of the members, for example, then there's always going to be this tight interplay between all the levels, and it's a very difficult situation to evolve in. Carl, what affects how steep the uh, decay is? So it just depends on if you care, if you're counting up these little delta babies as being a function of changes within the babies themselves. And so. Um, and what was that? What's the delta term again? So that's the change in the in the in the phenotype of a entity over time. So how much of that change you in, interpret as changing of the of evolution of the parts themselves? And so there's an upper bound that includes four terms and a lower bound that's just that one. It's an unusual diagram. It is. 
It's going to get worse, guys. Simpson diagram. Because I've never seen anyone plot the number of terms in an equation. Uh, it's probably never going to happen again. So this is, hopefully it's not a singularity. OK, so this is less quantified. So this is the, what would happen then, what the consequence of this interpretation is that fitness is no longer a scalar. There's at every level, or at maybe every time scale, if these levels are ambiguous, there's a fitness value that's a combination of the growth, the death, and the birth at that level. And each one of, if you go on the time scales to ignore exactly what a level is, there's going to be some shape to this curve. And that shape is what's going to drive the evolution of the whole system. And so you can build it up to some extent by like mapping on where the levels are. And at some far end, you'll have this extinction. So there may, because everything goes extinct, this should in principle drop down. But these are, each level is independent of each other when there's individuation. And where there's, where there's a distinction between expansion and multiplication. And so those heights can vary and they're free to evolve. And so what multi-level selection would look like this, from this point of view is maximizing the areas under that curve. And curves with different shapes would be different life history strategies, macroevolutionary life history strategies, or multi-level selection resolutions to these life history strategies. So you'd have weed-type things here and tree-type things there. Why, sorry? depending on how they're investing all of this, dedicating themselves to fitnesses at each level. And so the trees are getting huge and staying put and not really making that many babies. And the weeds are making a lot more babies. And so there's an emphasis on the short term versus like the long term. Yeah, so this is a diff more subtle and unworked out multi-level version of that type of thing. Um, when you say maximize the area, I mean, you mean under some constraint? Yeah because there must be in some way. And that the basic constraint is that a calorie of energy can only be used in one way. But also, you don't expect, like, you expect, depending on the type of organism, whether tree or wheat, that uh, the peak would stay same place? or Not necessarily. So um, I've tried to kind of sketch this out for corals. Um, and the difference between a solitary and a colonial coral actually has a big extinction consequences because of the population structures of the colonial ones that are dedicating themselves to growth. They have very low dispersal rates and very, very low recruitment rates. So almost all of the populations of these colonial ones are due to breaking or growing. Because of that, there's a tendency for them to go extinct. And so there's this trade-off between focusing on growth at one end and shrinking it down at the other end. And the solitary ones, by having their lifestyle, are a little less prone to extinction. And so there's a crossing of those two curves. That's the, as far as we can get. But this is still, you know. There's a site. No, that, that I'm, I'm just thinking that it's somehow it's a size thing. If you are bigger, you are more prone to extinction. Because yeah, there's associate all sorts of correlations between things. So there's always going to be a drop somehow because things, species are have yet to evolve immortality, just empirically. 
So there's the, that site is constrained, but it, it could not be. Um, and it's basically how much each level contributes to the overall evolution. These curves have the same area. Yep, <laughs> which is important. So that what that gives you, right, is different strategies. It gives you the variation in organisms in an ecological sense. And so that's why this is like a weed in a tree. There's no one way to be maximally fit. Could I ask you a question? Like, if you have a colony of coral, a big, huge one, yep. do, do you see like between points like uh, a lot of genetic variation? To some extent. And you have like somehow. You can get it from fusion as well as from mutation as they grow. So you have a horizontal transfer also. They're connected in some way, but they're also very similar due to clonal growth. So there's not that many opportunities from them to really differentiate, how, but it's how still. Can it be a, like a how big? Huge. They're both. An old? How, how, how old? They're totally immortal in some ways, and they've been observed to be tens of thousands of years old. But the, size, the maximum size is not constrained by their desire to get bigger. It's constrained by the other things that they're growing with. Yeah. So selection then would be shifting these curves around to have a life strategy that maximizes the area of the curve. But the pressure is always to move back towards the left. So as long as selection is pushing it to the right, is that? I don't know if there's pressure on any direction that's preferred only to make the area higher. Yeah. That's that weird example where the, everything is due to, it's a super tumor or something, right? Um, so there are aspects of this where there's no Organisms don't live, but the rest of them live somewhere like this. So I know this is kind of um, a very conceptual way of doing it, but I think it's helpful because we really don't understand what's going on in these types of organisms that are really different from us. I have problems with area under the curve ideas, as you said, about fitness is a vector. Yeah. Something other than a scalar, let's say. With that. say that, then there's lots of things I can do with a vector. Taking the area under the curve of a vector is sort of like the most boring. Taking its magnitude or something. I mean, I'm not even sure. But what else would you do with it? Hmm? What else would you do with it? Well, if you have a vector space, you can do lots of things. You can make dot products. You can, you know. Uh, but what would those things tell you? Well, I I don't know exactly, but I'm. I'm, well, what I'm, they would do. I guess I'm saying is that taking, adding the components of a vector, which is sort of what the area under the curve is here. I'm not even sure you want to take the area under the curve as using time as the, yeah. the dummy variable. But, but, but uh, uh, it seems to me that it may not be the right thing to do. I'm not, I'm not suggesting what is the right thing. So to it's do. the equivalent of. Fisher's fundamental theorem where that maximizes fitness, right? And it, what that is is a very small view of evolution. 
the dot product would be the response to selection given that structure of that fitness vector. And it would determine how phenotypes actually evolve due to this structure. And so there are other operations that are actually really important. It just happens that if there is a ma if natural selection maximizes anything under this view of, of fitness, it would maximize the area rather than the height at any one particular spot. Yeah. Wouldn't it be more correct to see it as a matrix? Because it, it depends on the on the level at which you're selecting, but it also depends on the perspective. Because uh, so well, it would be in fact once you calculate the selection. Yeah, so, so if you're looking from the perspective of a cell, this matrix, this vector would look different than when you look from the perspective of the... Of yeah, the so that's... Roland is saying fitness is a tensor. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. in it, yeah. yeah. That's the selection on the previous slide. <laughs> the selection gradients are the tensors. That was reflected but, on the previous slide. You don't have to interpret time literally. That's, that's why well, there are multiple levels exactly. of selection there. I mean, that gets to my question of what you're what the area under the curve really means. Well, I'm wondering if you think that taking the area under the curve might not be the right thing to do because for a specific reason or just because we can concept, we can imagine a million other things to do, none of which we've tested the utility of. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, this stuff can be ported into normal theory. It's just a, being a little more explicit about what levels may or may not mean. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so like this area under the curve is meant to re reflect this Fisher idea, right, that natural selection increases the magnitude of the fitnesses over time. What I find useful about this is that it's, it's very easy to just be reminded that a lot of the discussions over what is more fit or should we be surprised that multicellularity evolves many times or a few times or it seems to me that this would be a better strategy or it seems to me that would be a better strategy. When you take them at single points, whatever you want, time, levels, None of those questions or speculations really make a lot of sense. You should only take them, I think, over multiple, whatever you want, times, scales, levels. Um, because what a given cancer cell is doing at this, at one moment in time, cannot explain to us why cancer exists or why it doesn't exist. Yep. It's a useful kind of visual to remind us of that, I think. Okay. So, thanks everybody. We have, I have, would we have 10 minutes for questions or anything else if we want, or we can just go get lunch and come back for Cassandra's. Let's, let's thank you first. Thanks. So can you say a little bit more about you were hoping to track uh, propagule size, propagule number size, something like that? Yeah. How's that going? How easy are those data to? It's hard. Um, and part of it is that for all of this stuff, if you imagine the ant situation, you have to be dig way back into these 40s and 50s ecological literature to get actual samples and information about the samples of the colony, which is what the key to this data is. If you go to a species description, maybe you can get an idea qualitatively of how they do that. But, or if you go to Wilson's big book and you look it up, a ghost of that information is present, but it's not the quantitative version of it. And so it's just exactly the same issue with the bus compilation. You did it the fast and dirty way, and to do it the right way is really a lot of work. So it's just one of these things I do when I have the opportunity and trying to build it up. And maybe if people 
who do answer some other thing know the answer that, or they can point me to papers I meet them and they do that but it's slow going and it would be great to have it at the multicellular level too and have very quantitative data on the proportions of germ lines for a, a multitude of organisms but so it what is about the prokaryotes? those two they all behave this, in a largely similar way where the data is available so what happens with the data from those? It's got to be pretty, is it different? Um, it should be easier to have, right? If you, especially if they're plated up in a like lab type situation. I was thinking, are you taking into account group level selection like at the you know, community level of microbes? That's a really tricky question. So. I'm curious as to how you're dealing with that. The, I know, it was quite For a focal level, we, I just try to hone in and just do simple counts, and then let the um, and ignore the hierarchical structure of all the possibilities that are out there. So one of the ways that you can play that game when it is hierarchical is there's this idea that Dan McShay had that there's this complexity drain within parts that are in a new higher level part. So the cells of colonial organisms are simpler than the cells of solitary organisms, and that seems to be true to some extent. We don't have a good sense of how universal this complexity drain is, but weird stuff happens like that that should just fall out if you have this kind of base level quantitative sampling. So what weird things happen when you have something like a C. diploidia, which is a single cell? Does that? All sorts of weird so things. Want to like bucks the, uh the view of these things because it's you know, essentially a single cell that has differentiated essentially cellular parts, mm -hmm. that's the best way to put it. So it behaves as if it's a multicellular organism even though it's not. Yeah, and ciliates do the same thing. That's true. And so there is this kind of mesoscale level with these types of things where they're, they tend to be these big cell, the ciliates at least are giant and they have this kind of division, reproductive division of labor to help out to some extent. And so. Um, you know, lots of Graham Bell's work on this was about how size itself is the important driver for this, which may may not be true. See, but because you were talking about a uh, long time scale, about evolution, and on the other hand, you were talking about fitness, and so I guess here the pre-assumption is Presumption is that the fitness is something measurable, but actually, you know, on a long time scale, the environment is always changing, and so that, you know, something, you know, with a good fitness here, but may not be very good, you know, later on. And so I guess you could take this into account. Yeah, and so part of that would be like in this funny vector way. If you take this value here, and what you're saying is if you track that over longer time scales, that might go up and down itself. But there's also these fitnesses at the inherent in that time scale, that longer time scale themselves that are different. So these could be very wiggly noisy curves if you actually track them. So. Thanks for listening, guys.